and welcome to Altamar. I'm Mooney Jensen. And I'm Peter Schechter, here to navigate the rough seas of global politics like we do every other week. Recently on Altamar, we spoke with Secretary Larry Summers about Putin and Ukraine, the effect of sanctions and the risks to the global economy. Mooney, the Russian invasion of Ukraine has just totally punctured our post-COVID bubble and upended everything from the price of gas to a determined belief in Western values that we thought were like out of vogue and now they're back in vogue. And for the past few weeks, we've shifted the bubble of our COVID lives to become admirers and followers of President Zelensky on Twitter, on TV, as he talks to parliaments all over the world. And from talking only about vaccines and masks to now Googling nuclear and biological warfare. And amazingly, we find that suddenly it's not only governments, but it's also CEOs and presidents of corporations that are in the same position as we are, forced out of their lulls and having to make some wrenching, painful responses about what's been occurring in Russia and Ukraine. And businesses, Muni, are leaving Russia in droves. That's true, Peter. And I remember the first weeks of the war. It seems like it's been so long. We heard like a fascination, brand after brand, giant store after giant store closing their doors in Russia. Oil giants closed down their rigs and tech companies closed down their doors to Putin, sending their workers back home and turning the lights off. Luxury goods brands shuttered their retail shops and there was a wave of global companies exiting Russia permanently or temporarily that has not stopped. The number and counting is over 500 companies withdrawing from Russia, and that number changes every day. And the names and countries of origin are public information. We're looking at that information pretty frequently. And those who stay are criticized, although they argue that they remain to protect their workers and stakeholders. But there is some degree of public shaming for those large companies from around the world who choose to remain. And the criticism has been relentless. Both things are true, Mooney, the the relentless criticism and how remarkable it is that companies that have made you know, millions and billions of dollars in investments have packed up and left. The number of corporations, you know, amounts really to just an additional layer of sanctions, and it's a heavy blow to Putin and his credibility. It's true, we've seen a shift in corporate behavior in the last decades, which has moved from, you know, corporate social responsibility, taking a larger and larger place. Companies have taken stands on environment, on voting, on gender issues, on racial issues, on workers' rights. And a few years ago, the Business Roundtable in the United States, which is made up of Fortune 500 company CEOs, expanded their mission and announced a transition of priorities from shareholders to stakeholders. And value suddenly penetrated the language of corporations. But what is happening now is different. What's happening in Russia is different. So let's hear from Thea on the impact of more personal values and how personal sanctions often promoted through social media work or don't work. I'm Taya Ivanovich, and this is Taya's Take, where we take a look at youth and social justice issues. And today, we'll take a look at the personal boycotting of Russian products and what impact, or lack thereof, that actually has on the Putin regime. 
And so by choosing to reject Russian products, shoppers are hoping to create enough economic pain to convince Putin's government to back down from its invasion of Ukraine. And the world of social media has really intensified polarization also on this particular issue of boycotts and calls for boycotts in general against fortune 500 companies for example have nearly tripled since 2010 which is sort of the start of social media more broadly and the most common trigger was politics so absolutely true peter you you were mentioning corporate social responsibility we've seen a huge boom of that in the last decade or so and you know it sounds really great to feel like you're taking a stance as a consumer but unfortunately there are a lot of problems with this view when it comes in particular to this issue of boycotting russian products first americans actually consume very few products that are truly russian and that goes for vodka and oil as well russian oil actually makes up 3% of what americans consume on a daily basis and if you're listening in europe that number is is higher but it's again mostly for oil and gas which unfortunately you as a consumer can't do very much about except for pressure your own government rather than the russian government and the mistaken impression has led people to punish businesses that are really russian in name only and some us states have recently placed a ban on russian spirits and then discovered that they were setting a policy that really affected two brands with a very small footprint it's the russian standard and ustanyochka president biden also announced a ban on all russian liquor imports in april but less than 1% of the vodka consumed in the us actually comes from russia and the other problem is that consumer boycotts fail to have much of an impact on the targeted company's bottom line because they're either too hard to stick to as people discovered when they tried to shun BP gas after the Deepwater Horizon oil spill or because they inspire a spirited response from consumers who want to support a company precisely because it's under attack and you may remember the outrage after chief executive of Chick-fil-A professes opposition to same-sex marriage in 2012 mayors in liberal cities like San Francisco and Boston said that Chick-fil-A should look elsewhere to open new restaurants but then conservatives rally their followers to support the chain so its nationwide expansion continued and there's plenty of Chick-fil-A restaurants from Brooklyn to Seattle. So if you're boycotting Russian products or not going to Russian restaurants, my take is that you should probably take a closer look to understand whether that company or that restaurant is actually Russian. And if they are, they very well may be escaping Putin's regime and not deserving your wrath. So tweet at Alzheimer podcast and let me know what you think. It's true, Peter and Thea, that companies have become stronger and more significant political players in the past years, not just because they're doing the right thing, but because of the high price of being punished for their inaction. So the last time there was such an exodus in history was in the 80s in South Africa, where hundreds of American companies stood with US policy and rejected apartheid and shuttered their activities. The difference then was that there were no social media platforms for public shaming or for customers posting, but this message itself we still remember and came also often at a great cost for companies. So this is a really great time to bring in our guest, DJ Peterson of Longview Advisors. He's a repeat offender at 
Altamar, <laughs> and we love to have conversations with him. DJ advises executives on executive positioning and political risk. He built and led the corporate advisory service practice before his current job at Eurasia Group, serving large cap clients in North America, Europe, and Japan. He also worked at Rand Corporation, leading major research ventures in areas such as Russian politics and policy, natural resources management, homeland security, and technology futures. DJ studied at Duke University, Russian studies as well, and did his MA and PhD in political science from UCLA. He's based in Los Angeles, California, and frequently speaks to and writes for top-level business audiences. And he's been quoted in publications like Bloomberg Businessweek, The Wall Street Journal, New York Times, Los Angeles Times, and CNN, and of course, on Altamar. Welcome back, DJ. It's a pleasure to have you back. I enjoy your show a lot. It's great to be here. Thank you. Thank you. So let's talk about the hundreds of companies that are withdrawing their business from Russia after Putin's invasion of Ukraine. You usually take, and this is the name of your company, the long view of things. Is this going to become a way for companies now to exert political pressure in other regions as well on environmental issues, on human rights, on labor issues? Is this like a new practice that is going to be taken by business? This is a huge question, Muni. I think it's going to set a precedent. I don't know if it's really a policy. In many ways, the companies have been forced to take action because of public sentiment, exactly what you said, because of social media, but also just the shock, the public shock. And, and in particular in Europe, there were significant demonstrations in the streets of, of European cities about the state of affairs. And companies really felt that they had no other option but to pull out where it wasn't required by sanctions. I would say that this is a really significant development, as you pointed out before. And the question is, is will they be held or will this standard hold in other markets? And we can talk about that going forward. So in this case, this retreat of company has, has created an impact around the world. But does it have a real impact on Putin's decision in any way? No, it doesn't. I think it's very important to be clear that we often think of, or Putin is often portrayed as a strategic chess player. But in fact, he lives in an imaginary medieval world in which Russia is great, Russia is the future, and the West is degenerate. So there's nothing really the West can do or Western companies can do to really change his thinking. Yes, the Russian government has told Western companies not to leave and has tried to create some kind of incentives to keep them there. But really, he doesn't care. He's got a mission, and his mission is to make Russia great again. It's amazing. He's been described as a judo player and not a chess player, and, and you describe that very well. So as of now, more than 500 companies and counting have withdrawn from Russia. And there is also an economic impact for consumers in Russia and for the companies themselves. Everybody is making a huge sacrifice here. Where does it end? What is the, the end game of all this? You know, in conversations with companies, I think this is the big question. And in many cases, people are wondering what is the end game and how soon is the end game? And perhaps can we get back into Russia? Can we reanimate our businesses that have been frozen or our investments? Can we reopen our stores? And, and when will this happen? And 
I'm saying we can't go back. And there's several reasons for this. First of all, the situation on the ground in Ukraine is so dire. And we saw this with the pictures of the alleged, you know, war atrocities. It's really galvanized opinions and views of Putin. As long as Vladimir Putin is in office, sanctions aren't going to be lifting. And very importantly, the brand risks for companies is going to be heightened. Again, you mentioned the social media pressure. So that's one. The second is that the Russian economy has been fundamentally hobbled by sanctions, financial sanctions, and most importantly, also technology sanctions. So the long-term outlook for the Russian economy is very dim. It's, it's going to contract by 7, 8, 9, 10% this year, and it's not going to recover next year. So the business imperative, the opportunity for companies to sell into Russia is greatly diminished. And then finally, I think if you look at these larger issues such as ESG, what does it mean to be operating? The scrutiny is just much greater. And this is making them much more risk averse than they were in the past. DJ, welcome. It's great to hear you again. Are you surprised by how many of these companies actually sort of scrammed that quickly? And I ask for two reasons in particular, because you know, some of these companies are energy companies and you know, energy investments are so capital intensive and energy companies are also, you know, they're very used to working in very difficult places. And yet Western energy companies have largely left along with everybody else. I mean, are you surprised by this? Absolutely. It is quite stunning. First of all, Many people were surprised by the severity of, of the official sanctions and how quickly they got laid on, especially by the Europeans. And then, of course, you have this self-sanctioning by companies. And I think there's several factors going on here. Again, first of all, is this sense of shock and that the order, especially in Europe, has been fundamentally changed and essentially kind of a reversion to World War II scenarios of tanks rolling across the European landscape. The second, I think, is very important, again, is, is what Muni talked about was the role of social media, uh, the role of, of, of individuals holding cameras, that this war is being televised from thousands and thousands of angles in real time and by satellite. And in today's world, images speak so much louder than you know, the the kind of many other conflicts that are going on in the world that aren't televised. And of course, you have a Ukrainian populace, which is extremely motivated and extremely technologically savvy and, and connected that are able to broadcast these stories. So yes, I am very surprised on the speed. Now, specifically, Peter, to the issue of the oil companies, that was even more remarkable. I think there's several things at play in addition to what I what I just mentioned. I would call out, for instance, uh, the actions by BP and Shell, which was they have significant investments. And in some ways, you could see that this was an acceleration of their ESG priorities. BP's investment in Rosneft, the big Russian oil producer, you know, Rosneft had no sustainable, credible sustainability plan, no plan to address climate change. And therefore, BP was under a tremendous pressure to reassess its investment in Russia. And so in some ways, this just dramatically escalated it. I would say that's the same as well for Total, France's Total, that in many cases, Russia uh, is a ESG disaster now, is a real, it's a, that the companies can't justify these energy companies. And so 
yes, it was very surprising, but also it's quite remarkable if you kind of unpack it, you know, why it happened. Let's go back to something you, you've come back to repeatedly, which is the pressure of social media and the brand risk of staying or returning. And yet there are some companies that have stayed in Russia. You know, they've cloaked themselves in concern for their workers and the communities that they're in. But it sure doesn't seem like the public exposure of staying in Russia has affected their businesses at all. Talk to us a little bit about who are those companies. I mean, they're obviously, I'm not asking for the full list, but give us a sense of what types of company are the ones that have just managed to stay on. Right. So... There's an excellent list that's been compiled by a professor at, at Yale, and anybody can find it. And it's real-time tracking, and it's very interesting how they break it down and the justifications given and what role they're continuing to play. Peter, if you look at the list, by and large, almost every major Western brand is pulled out or frozen or curtailed or written off their investments. The players that are remaining are largely Asian, uh, Chinese, Indian, other Asia, or they're companies that are not really, they're not retail brands, they're B2B, they're providing oil field services, technology. Even in, say, in the pharmaceuticals area, it's, it's limited to, say, trials, drug trials. And so the visibility, I think, is a, is a factor here. And how visible is it, again, to this, say, social media scrutiny, public scrutiny? And then, of course, you know, a lot of countries, it's, it's very important to remember that a lot of countries outside of the U.S., Europe, and Japan are still continuing to engage, have not imposed sanctions on Russia, and are continuing to do business with Russia. India is a big player, of course, China as well. Let me go back to also something that you and Mooney were talking about, which was, I mean, do companies now need to take political stands all the time? You know, th this case is, I understand, is very obvious, very different, very blatant, very, very raw. But should companies leave their investments behind now based on the politics of different countries? And, you know, what happens if there's something in Bolivia or Indonesia or, or is this just because it's Europe? I think Russia is setting a precedent for corporate decision-making. Again, I, I go back to ESG criteria. These are becoming more and more important to investors, to boards, and companies are being expected to adhere more closely to them. So if you look at Russia, the Russia pullout by corporates as part and parcel of an ESG screen, a screening process, no matter how hasty it was. You can see this screen being applied to other countries and other, other situations. The question is, is, does it get the scrutiny? Obviously, a big issue is China. For most companies in Russia, Russia at most accounted for 10% of their business. And this was in a few segments such as beer. In most cases, it was 2 3 4% of profits. Um, so relatively not too hard of an economic hit not too big of an economic hit when you look at the, the entire globe. China's not the case in that, in that regard. And so it'll be much more fraught economically and politically, obviously, in social media about, say, and as we see, you know, around human rights issues, uh, religious issues, obviously the Taiwan story, companies are not going to pull out nearly as fast from, certainly from, from China. When you talk about other 
Smaller emerging markets, though, again, it's, it's an issue of scrutiny, I think. You mentioned places like Bolivia, um, obviously in parts of Africa and Asia. The question is, is, do they get the scrutiny? And is this large enough? Is this sufficient enough to drive? So on the one hand, Russia, the Russia situation is creating a template for action, but it's not necessarily creating the same momentum for action around the world. So we recently had an episode with a, a guest who had a provocative theory. With, his name was Vivek Ramaswamy, who was basically opposed to what he considered fake wokeness, which is when, you know, obviously companies and t- take a stand on, on political issues. And I, I'm trying to find the difference between this concept and the response to Russia. How many of them are genuinely concerned about what's happening? Which ones of them are, are just trying to save their reputation? Uh, and are some of them actually just looking to strengthen their brand for an activist consumer base? Yeah, that's a really good question. Clearly, the pullout from Russia, which is companies have written off hundreds of billions of dollars of investment and years of participation in that market. That's not fake. That's real. I would be careful calling that fake wokeness. But clearly, you know, again, companies are not going to be as quick to pull out of China for infractions or other other markets, whether it be, say, Saudi Arabia or Latin American markets. Um, and we've seen this reticence already. I think it's just going to be a matter of how effective a social media strategy is, how visible the company is, how visible the brands are, how obviously visible is the offense. You know, clearly, we have no visibility into labor camps in China. So that makes that issue very difficult to prosecute um, from an ESG perspective. It's interesting that the Russia situation is going to create conflicts of interest or double binds for companies. So if you look at, for instance, Walt Disney Company, Walt Disney pulled out, announced a withdrawal, pulled pull back from the Russian market at the same time that it was lambasted, really got tremendous criticism in Florida for not opposing the um, don't say gay bill there. And in fact, it was really, if you, but you could see that, that, that there's a direct parallel there, right? This ESG screen on Russia and the ESG screen on Florida. So you can see where companies are going to find themselves in double binds much more in the future. Again, Russia's creating the template. It's not necessarily creating a clear pathway for companies, though. So, DJ, I wanted to go from companies to consumers. And in my segment today, we talked about personal boycotts. And, you know, personal boycotts of consumers buying Russian products are very popular these days. And we've seen we've seen these types of personal sections can be quite ineffective in the past. And, you know, whether it's because they don't consume a lot of it, for example, vodka is many brands in the U.S. are not actually Russian. They're often Ukrainian or Latvian. Or it can be because personal sanctions are very hard to sustain. And in the past, we've seen it with KFC, for example, with the boycott in 2012 that created sort of pushback from conservatives. So how do you think about sort of these personal boycotts and personal stakes when it comes to, you know, affecting these major policy decisions? That's a great question, Taya. I think you're right. First of all, there's almost no real personal boycott opportunity for Russia. There's no real products. I mean, a few very, very discreet brands. But what we're seeing, though, is whether it's you call it wokeness or boycotts, 
is increasingly, whether it's at the individual level, at the company level, value judgments are being made. And value judgments are being made about what we consume. And that is completely right. We should be assessing, you know, where does our food come from? You know, similarly, where does our energy come from? And make decisions around that. So while you can't boycott, say, Russian products really directly, I think it is very important to understand that high prices at the gas pump, and I'm in Los Angeles, and they're all around $6 a gallon here in Los Angeles. That's a direct response to our dependence in part on Russian energy. And so when you think about paying for gas, it's like, well, yeah, I actually have to pay more for gas because there's political risks associated with producing oil in places that aren't really savory, Venezuela, Iran, uh, Saudi Arabia, Russia, of course. And so I think one is to, it is very important to make these value judgments. It's hard to understand, but you know, we get a lot of, United States imports a lot of platinum. And platinum is used in catalytic converters, which, you know, helps get us clean air in, in cities, again, such as Los Angeles. And so I think as long as we understand the supply chains, where our goods come from, where, where some even the most basic things come from, whether it's food or minerals or energy, not, not to mention branded final products, I think it's a really important question that everybody should be asking, but they need to be really informed and not kind of knee-jerk. DJ, we're running out of time, but I just wanted to ask a final question a little bit about, you know, when governments fail to provide well-being and growth for their voters or and when they overtly cause disruptions, what's the role of business? I mean, we've talked about ESG, but th this role seems to have grown in, in recent years in which businesses seem to take on a role, and particularly in Western countries where voters perceive governments to have been... You know, have to have failed and provide some of the basic services, but also in lead and basic values. And so businesses are now seen as, well, why don't you lead? Even small businesses are being asked, why don't you lead? So beyond just the Russia, what's what's the role of businesses and how far is this ESG going to go? Yeah, that's a, a great question. And frankly, it's a very difficult question for the businesses themselves. To use your narrative, I look at the, the again the Walt Disney situation in Florida. Clearly, LGBT activists were very unhappy with the direction of the policy and what was going on in the state legislature. And of course, the governor came strongly behind this bill. So then, what do the activists? Who do the activists turn to? But the next big thing, which is one of them, happens to be Disney, and and hoping that Disney will take a stand. So yes, when we see these kind of failures in the public policy arena. By default, uh, companies, you know, because they're large in many cases and because they're very visible, then become a vehicle through which people try and achieve policy objectives. This is not going to go away. Again, because of, in many cases, let's just say the, the weaknesses or failures of democratic institutions, certainly here in the United States, the visibility of, of large corporates and also the role of, of social media and the ability of activists to aggregate political pressure on companies and, and brand pressure on companies. So this is not going to go away. It's not clear, though, that companies are always going to do the right thing or that they can always do the right thing. At the end of the day, you know, most companies are private and they respond to their shareholders. And, and that's not necessarily the voters. DJ Peterson from Longview Advisors, thanks again for joining us on Altamar. It's great to have you back. Thank you. Great to be with you.
We just had a really interesting conversation, but I have some contradictions in my head, Peter and Thea, because for once, I mean, I think that companies are doing the right thing to take a stand. I'm just listening carefully about what that does to consumers in Russia and how fair that could be and how the boycotts really are are just a symbolic gesture that makes no difference. The fact that these companies leaving doesn't change the end game makes me feel like it's a little bit pointless. But then the what I'm left with after this conversation is the fact that governments are failing so spectacularly all around the world that business has started to step in and take the role of a political actor. And I am left wondering whether this is something good or something completely messed up. Well, look, I mean, unfortunately, I completely agree with you. This is something that Taya and I say all the time in our other shop, which I think Taya wants to talk about in a second, which is corporations, large and small, are being asked to sort of provide some type of moral and value leadership that I don't think, you know, corporations are used to doing. And uh, I don't know that I particularly trust them to do that, particularly when they're corporations that are so large that they depend on stockholders, you know, private corporations, small cor- smaller corporations, you know, one can, one can believe, but large corporations whose sole motivation is money makes it very difficult to, to do that. One of the other things I think, Mooney, that really came out of what DJ said was don't look at Russia as going to be the shining light on the hill that's going to inform what the next 10, 20 years look like because it's not. What he didn't say but and what I believe is that it's because Europe and it's because there have been lots of problems in other places before, but we don't care about the other places like we care about nice white people that bl- blonde that look like they're Europeans. I just don't I just don't know that there's going to be that much interest in leaving Indonesia or leaving Nicaragua when I don't know, Peter. That's happened. that's like the, the the Trevor Noah argument and I don't I don't think it's a race thing. I think it's that's just an American view of things because Americans look at everything through the view of racism and not, and don't even go beyond beyond that black and white literally black and white argument. I think there's so many other levels of sophistication, but I want to hear from Thea because I I like fully disagree with the Trevor Noah argument that this is just a thing about race. I think that was a, a catchy monologue, but it does not reflect what's happening. I actually agree with Muni because I don't think Nicaragua or Indonesia are nuclear powers and that have biological weapons that can, you know, have a crazy dictator that's going to just throw a bomb. So I think it's a little more nuanced than just the black and white argument. So I agree with Muni here. And I also think, you know, people want to put their money where their mouth is. And, you know, Peter and I founded Immigrant Food, which is a restaurant startup with a mission. I mean, it's called Immigrant Food. So we wear it right on our sleeves that we celebrate, advocate, and educate on behalf of immigrants. So I'll stop the plug there. But um, I believe that the future really is that small, medium, and large companies should take a stance on the values that they believe in. So with that, I hope you have a debate at home about it as well as as we just did. You can listen to All Tomorrow wherever you get your podcasts and uh, please rate and review us. Also sign up for our bi-weekly newsletter where you get a lot of analysis on world issues every other week in your inbox. See you next time.